Hola, I'm Elias Torres, co-founder and CTO of Drift. You're listening to the American Dream Podcast. On this show, we talk to leaders who have achieved their own version of the American Dream. But we also focus on the work that needs to be done to create a more consistent and diverse face of corporate America. That's why I'm setting aside time to talk to leaders of nonprofit organizations, the people leading the charge to build a brighter future for the next generation. Bienvenidos a todos to the American Dream Podcast. Today, I'm excited to have Kevin Marinacci. He is the president of Fabretos Children Foundation. It's a nonprofit organization focused on educating and empowering underserved children, youth, and their families to improve their livelihoods and their communities. The Fabretto organization operates under the belief that education can be the gateway out of poverty. And for over 65 years, they've worked with not only students, but also their parents and teachers to improve the quality of education and ensure students reach their full potential. Today, Kevin is going to tell us more about the work Fabretto is focused on operating now as a global organization. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Elias. It's a, a real delight to be with you today and, and your audience and celebrating this wonderful American dream. And I know uh, you've worked so hard to achieve yours and you're so generous to help others here in the U.S. and abroad to, to achieve theirs. So thank you. Maybe we share a little bit of a quick story, right, of our, our mutual friend. I have a friend that is a startup tech guy here in the United States. And one time we were meeting and he asked me where I was from. I said, I'm from Nicaragua. And he goes, oh, do I have a story to tell you, right? And next thing I know, Kevin, you were here in Boston and we had dinner together. And I got to hear the story directly from you. And I've been so in awe, right, because of, of your work and your dedication. But let's, let's tell the audience, right, a little bit of that story. I, what happened? Tell me, let's go back to Kevin graduating out of school was it, it was a Georgetown you went to school? Yep. I graduated in Georgetown in, in 1989, and myself and 10 other volunteers were sent to, to Nicaragua to volunteer for a year. We were assigned to different programs, different nonprofits. I wanted to work with kids, and so our hosts in Nicaragua said, well, the guy that takes care of the kids here is Padre Fabretta, and that's who I was assigned to and, and had the pleasure of working with him for about a year. Padre Fabretta was a, a real legendary person. He was an, an Italian missionary, a Salesian missionary. He came to Nicaragua in the late 40s and worked in some of the Salesian schools. Salesians, as you know, do great work with youth and, and training and trades. But Padre Fabretto wanted to work with kids that weren't in school, those that were on the street, those that had been abandoned. So he, he started his own organization in 1953 called Familia Padre Fabretto, Father Fabretto's family. In 1989, as you might recall, Nicaragua was still at the Civil War. It was a very challenging time in Central America. And when I got there, it was uh, Padre Fabrera ran homes that were with kids that had been orphaned, some escaping the war, abandoned kids, poor kids. It was, it was quite a mixed bag. It was a very challenging time. The good news was that the war ended in 1990. And unfortunately, the bad news was our founder, Padre Fabrera, passed away in March of that year. So it was kind of a, a real crossroads for that organization. We were afraid that his good works might die with him. So a bunch of us, some volunteers, some benefactors, some alumni, we all got together to keep his good works going. And gracias a Dios and, and many friends, it continues today. So we're coming up on 70 years next year. We're very proud of that. He passed away while you were there as a 22, 21-year-old? 
Yeah, I was 21. I uh, had been down there for about eight or nine months. Our our commitment was for a year. So he passed away March 22nd of 1990, and I was heading home in in May to to Chicago where I grew up. But it was really a it was really a, a seminal moment where here was this guy who really sacrificed his whole life to serve others and built a beautiful organization. Father Fabretta was a, a, a charismatic leader. Upon reflection, many many Nicaraguans think of him as you know one of the incredible people of the last century. In fact, the Nicaraguan Historical Society had a reflection, 1999, 2000, who were the 100 most important personas of the last century, and he was one of them. So La Prensa, the paper of record down there when they celebrated their 90th anniversary of, of publishing, who were the 90 notables? So here was this larger-than-life figure, an incredible leader through service, through serving children and youth and campesino families, but he wasn't really an organization guy. So he built this incredible thing, but it was in danger of, of dying with him. And so, again, a bunch of us said, well, we can't let this happen. It's important not only for the next generation of children, but also to preserve this memory of, a, of an incredible person who really uh, sacrificed and worked hard so that others can, can reach their dreams. What an amazing moment, right? And, and it is such a, it's just so, so moving and touching. I keep thinking about you, you know, as a 21-year-old appreciating what this man had had done right and willing to make a a sacrifice yourself to, to a choice a decision that had no no time limit at that moment that you could foresee and and choose to not come back to the united states right and not not do what every other one was doing right oh i got to get a job i got to go get me my apartment you were in washington chicago uh, condo, whatever, right? And play golf. And, and you made a decision, I'm staying in this country that I wasn't born. I don't speak the language. I mean, people don't even know what job to pick. And you made this incredible life decision. How, how'd you do that? Well, at first I, I called my folks back in uh, Evanston. So it's a city right north of uh, Chicago where I grew up. And I called my folks and said, I, I think I need to stay for another year. So at least in my mind, the transition was one day at a time, one year at a time. And, you know, my folks had sacrificed a great deal. I mean, uh, much like yourself, they were first generation to go to college. My father was a son of an Italian immigrant who worked in the coal mines for 40 years outside of Pittsburgh. He was fortunate to get a, a scholarship to go to Hopkins undergrad and then University of Chicago for his grad school and worked 40 years for uh, Amico Oil. You know, so my mom and dad lived the American dream. They worked very hard so that we could all go to to school. And I, my dad tells a story. He said, okay, you can stay for another year. But he came down to check it out and understand what was going on. I mean, here they just spent all this money sending their kid to Georgetown. <laughs> and you want to do what? And so he came to check it out. And he tells a story that he came to convince me to come home. But the beautiful thing is, is he caught the bug. I think that is because the American dream, as you know, and have lived, doesn't stop at our borders, our beautiful country's borders. It's really about people affording others the opportunity to reach their potential. And I think he and my mom saw that and so squarely got behind it. And and my dad, who is a you know a very was a very organized businessman and, and, and my undergrad at, at Georgetown was wonderful. It was liberal arts. I studied American studies. So, you know, I did great undergrad stuff, read tons of books, chase frisbees, enjoy, you know, meeting people all over. So I didn't have a, a business background, but my, my father said, okay, if we're going to get get stuck in and if we're going to help, 
let's get organized. And so after that first year, we began the U.S. 501c3, the nonprofit foundation here to raise awareness and money. You know, we began to tap into different networks, alumni networks of high schools and churches and colleges and start knocking on the door of foundations. And the wonderful thing about that, Elias, was, you know, the United States is an incredible country and people are so very generous. Certainly we have challenges and issues that we're trying to address. But when you think about since the founding of our country, that people come together to raise barns or raise money or support organizations, that's always been part of the American spirit of, of philanthropy. And, and, and so we took some of that energy and, and know-how and, and, and set up the U.S. Foundation in order to support Father Fabretto's work in Nicaragua. So that was a, a seminal moment, worked very hard with alum and other colleagues and, and began to build the organization out. Obviously, nonprofits are distinct enterprises than a for-profit companies like the ones that you have run, but you know, a lot of the same principles apply. And so, you know, investing in people and systems. And so we began get getting traction and support, and that was very positive and, and good things began to happen. We were able to improve the campuses where the, the students were studying. We were able to offer more programs. And this was at a time, as you remember, Nicaragua was really flat on its back. And in the beginning years, we didn't even know what the kids were going to eat the next day. So it was a challenging time. But again, we are very grateful for everybody who made it happen. I mean, I, I left Nicaragua in 1993. So that's the time where you were just getting started. Yeah, we probably crossed each other on the streets. <laughs> yeah, on the streets of Managua. You know, yeah, just to give people an idea of the magnitude, which is I've always been blown away, right? Because I feel like you have, yeah, I don't, I don't know if to, I mean, you're an entrepreneur, right? I think what what you did is, tell us a little bit of the, of the magnitude, like, what was it when you took it over, right? You were 21 years old, how many children, how many centers or offices or staff, and, and what is it now, right? Or, or what was at its peak? We'll talk about that. Yeah, it was, at that moment, a very challenging time in Nicaragua, Padre Fabreto had about 500 children and youth, and it was it was a residential program. So it was more like a boys' town or a girls' town model where children had been either abandoned, orphaned. So it's a little different model. Obviously, the, the the Civil War took such a heavy toll on everybody. So it was it was a small operation. I think in the earlier years, in the 60s and the 70s, was kind of Padre Ferreira's golden years of getting support and and more programming. But when I was when I was there, it was you know it was a very modest and again, we really didn't know any given day necessarily what the students were going to eat. And, you know, the education component of it was very, very thin because, again, we were just trying to keep kids out of harm's way. The, the war took such a great toll. So, you know, after that, we began building out the organization. And, you know, in the last 10 years, we, we grew to become a, a very leading education foundation in Nicaragua, serving over 50,000 students. Budgets raining, ranging from you know four to five million dollars. Working with leading companies like Cargill, Telefonica, who who did corporate social responsibility work with us. Uh, working with USAID, uh, Inter American Development Bank. So we we're able to bring you know keep that same passion of service, but bring in the kind of structure that you need in order to to attract social investment and and improve outcomes for these students. So I'm I am very proud of what we were able to build. Obviously, you know, what happened to us in the beginning of this year and so many other nonprofits in Nicaragua is, 
it's tragic, but I'm very proud that we're taking those lessons and, and being able to put those into play in, in other countries in the region as well. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, I think that a question we all ask ourselves, and me as a parent, right, for example, is like, how do we make children aware of the opportunities, right? How, how can we have an impact on children? And maybe it's the same children everywhere, but tell us a little bit of what you did for, for the children in Nicaragua, right? How did you approach it? What was your goal? And, and what were you able to do for them? Yeah, I think, you know, the job number one after the war ended was to get kids back in school. There was such a big gap in learning because of, of, of the war years. The, a lot of kids just didn't go to school. So job number one was getting butts in seats, if you don't mind me saying it that way, you know, getting kids back into the, to the school system. And that, was that the public school or your schools? Well, interestingly, Elias, so we had these campuses or we had these homes. There were, there were homes for children. And then after the war ended, we worked very hard to reunite those who did have family. And again, one of the, the beautiful things of Latin culture, and you know, you saw it here, you still see it, of course, in the United States, and you saw it throughout generations where you know, extended family helps take care of their own. And so if they didn't have a parent, but they might have had a, an uncle, an aunt, grandparents, we tried to reunite families and say, look, we don't want to substitute the family. We don't want to do a, a residential program that was needed at the time of the war to keep kids out of harm's way. Let's, let's reunite families next of kin and then use those assets that we have to start doing community-based education centers. So we, so we shifted towards a residential program to provide education opportunities for students. And then interestingly, as we, we gained traction on our own campuses, we had nine of our own campuses, we started working with school systems. So taking what we had learned and then bringing that to local public school systems, whether that was you know teacher training, using new methodologies, school lunch programs are a great tool for attracting and retaining students, especially in low income situations, because that's such an important part could be their best meal of the day often. And so we use some of those strategies to begin reaching and, and scaling more students. And the, the other important thing is having, and I'm not an educator, we have a, you know, I've learned over the years, but I'm so in awe of our, our teachers and our teacher trainers, you know, using the kind of methodologies that, that has the student drive their own learning. Obviously, they need to be in a context which makes that possible. But if you think about the really innovative methodologies, whether it's Montessori for, for young kids, or there's some great curricula out there for primary age students, uh, Escuela Nueva, which came out of Columbia New School. Again, and that's all about the students really kind of forging their learning. And then we use for the high school students and post-primary SAT, Sistema Aprendizaje Tutorial, Tutorial Learning System. So that's that's for kids in rural areas, young young men and women in rural areas that don't have access to high school, learning through this tutorial system by doing. So for example, they'll learn math by plotting out a, a garden. They'll learn life sciences, biology by composting. And all of that's very relevant because oftentimes these are, these are students and their families that depend on agriculture. And so what we've tried to do with and for the students is give them something robust and, and relevant. And I think that's when it really clicks for them because if it if it's if it's just chalk and talk if it's just somebody up there 
up at the blackboard just kind of regurgitating the lesson plans, that, that's really not relevant for them. I mean, it has to be applied learning. So, you know, we're proud that we've taken methodologies that are out there, contextualized them for the Nicaraguan cultural cultural relevance and socioeconomic relevance, and, and it's really proven to work. So we're very proud of that, and I think it really makes a difference. And not only, not only are the students, you know, as you suggested, or, or, or shared earlier. So working with parents to make sure that they appreciate the, the importance of education, working with teachers who might not have had the kind of training that we're used to having in the U.S. and, and, and making sure that they have the tools to make them become the, the most effective teachers. So it's, it's working with both the students, families, and, and the teachers, the whole education community. No, it's, that's incredible. And, and were you Everybody was more local staff, or did you depend on seasonal volunteers to come every year? We built a, a, a great team in country, some incredible, dedicated Nicaraguan teachers, teacher trainers. But we also did uh, leverage volunteers, some that would come for shorter periods of time, churches, schools, they would come in. And it was about sharing and each community learning from each other. You know, they would uh, they'd work on a project together with colleagues in Nicaragua that could be, you know, fixing up a classroom or putting in a, a school lunch hall or, or working on some of the some of the farming. And that's that's about both both communities learning from each other. And we did have long term volunteers, you know, from both uh, universities, business schools coming down to help us uh, tackle a, an enterprise issue or something that we were uh, looking to, to further. And we had a staff, predominantly Nicaraguan, but others from from different countries that came to work with us for you know short periods of time, a year or two as well. Can you give me examples of like these kids were getting meals, they were getting education, they were getting apprenticeship, right? What are some of the outcomes that you saw affecting these children? Uh, were they did they were able to attend colleges? They were able to take over a family farm. What what kind of stuff was happening, and how these communities were changing because of your work of the foundation? Yeah, in in contexts like Nicaragua and, and Central America, you know, over half of the students don't make it to the sixth grade. So, you know, you can imagine what future they're going to inherit. I mean, it's it's the continued subsistence farming, the kind of low level labor that really won't take them out of poverty. Our job number one was to break that ceiling for them, make sure that they can get through primary and then go post primary, whether that's you know technical training, which we did offer, you know, vocad on whether it was you know automotive at the time or carpentry more traditional trades and then as things develop uh, making sure that they had access to some IT training many took english as a second language giving them opportunity to to plug in what was a burgeoning tourist trade in in, in Nicaragua and then our sat program really gives them very practical agronomy skills so improving yields improving quality so that family farm, which could be their best asset, really gets optimized and, and linking them to markets and, and helping them with opportunities for, for credit and technical assistance. And so, you know, most overwhelmingly, very, very few people in, in countries like Nicaragua, Honduras, or Guatemala work for in the formal economy. So you have to give them the kind of tools and there's a great entrepreneurial spirit down there and pair that with some tools so that they can improve their livelihood. You know, we were able to revert those dropout rates. We were able to get students moving through the system, uh, graduate. We did have several hundred that went on to university, both in Nicaragua. We also were part of a couple of projects that, that helped promising young students spend 
two years in the United States at junior colleges and community colleges. Uh, we're very proud of that. So those were, those were opportunities that would have never been afforded to them had they not worked so very hard and, and were able to attain uh, their high school degree. I love this story so much. And, and to share right that I left in 93 and I have never returned back to Nicaragua for many reasons, right? And when I spoke with you, in some ways, I had too much of an ambition of saying, like, I want to go forward. I didn't want to look into the past. And, and when I met you, it, it was a, a very special time for me in, in this country where I started realizing uh, of the blessings that I had experienced, right, and the opportunities that I was able to, to take part of because of many people like you, right? I mean, I, I, I had, maybe it was in Nicaragua, but I mean, I had school in Nicaragua, but I had, you know, people in high school, people in college, people at work that, that mentored me, coached me, and guided me to, to be where I am today. I, I did not do this alone. And when you, when you mentioned what you were doing, you know, it definitely touched my heart of like wanting to go and, and, and see these kids, right? Because it's incredible. And then the pandemic hit and it just everything went south. And, and now what, what happens? T- tell us what happened, right? It's like you've you grown this amazing organization. Tell us a little bit about the political, social political situation in Nicaragua and, and what, what happened to, to the foundation as it was you know, headquartered in Nicaragua. One of the wonderful things about Fabretto is it really transcended, Padre Fabretto transcended politics and, and got support from all peoples, you know, rich, poor, left, right. And so we're very proud of that. And, and we worked closely with the Ministry of Education for many, many years. It's just that the, the Nicaraguan government has, has closed many, many foundations. We were one of 1,300 nonprofit organizations and civil society organizations that have been closed. We were, you know, had our charter revoked. Our assets were, were taken in Nicaragua. The, the small silver lining is the government does continue to use those schools, those, those physical assets to provide school. For now, we're taking our, our network, our, our knowledge of program delivery, and bringing it to other organizations in the region. So we're coming out of the ashes. And I'm just really uh, proud of our team and, and the response from, from friends and donors has been incredible. There's a lot of need all over the world. And, and those of us who are involved here in the United States or abroad know that you know service is seamless and it transcends borders. So we're excited about this chapter. We wish it had come about a, a different way, but you know, we're, we're not crying in our beer. We're, uh, we're moving forward. So it's an exciting time for our foundation. Yeah. That's what makes you, I think, a role model in, in my eyes, right? As an entrepreneur, as a leader, you pivoted. You pivoted very quickly, right? They, they seized your assets. They, they shut down all your operations. They took the authority, the control from you of something that you created, something Father Fabretto created, and you mobilized, right? Despite all the harm they did to your family, and that, and, and you, and you said, "Okay, I'm not going to stop right here. We're going to go, and we're going to look where they need us." And and you're now looking to expand through Central America, maybe starting in Guatemala. So tell us a little bit about this pivot and how this could be a blessing, you know, in in this time, right? Yeah, it was obviously a traumatic time, and our our focus was making sure that the wind down could be done safely, so that uh, none of our colleagues were in, in danger. It was a challenging time. And once that was done and I, and I physically left uh, Nicaragua to come back to Chicago, it took a little while to reflect. And our, and our team
team we got together on Zooms and we realized that, you know, what we built has value and that the good news is you can't take education away from something. So what we were able to do in Nicaragua still has lasting meaning. But pivoting from that to say, what are what are the tools that we've helped build? How can we deploy those in neighboring countries? How can we serve organizations that are that are working with youth and, and children as we did? This very, you know, leading with methodologies that, that make a difference. And so we have over the years built relationships with other NGOs and we reached out to them and we said, look, we are ready, willing, and able to help. We went deeper in monitoring evaluation or tech integration into the classroom or linking some of the, the work in agriculture to market. Those are things that we could bring to your organization. And they were very enthusiastic about that. Folks who have run the SAC program in Honduras, we've known for 20 years. And so there was trust and, there, and we've worked with them on, on regional networks. So we were able to, to pivot very quickly. And, and the donor community, both individual givers and, and foundations, were very enthusiastic. Again, nobody said, sorry, what happened? You're done. Everybody said, how can we help? Because we value what you've done and we know it can make a difference in other places. And so, you know, ironically, what happened in Nicaragua is, has kind of created this aperture for us to take it regionally. We've begun in Honduras. We just made our first grant to organizations in Honduras last week. We had our first virtual training for folks in Honduras, for about 400 teachers to help use tech in classroom situations. It's going to be an in-person training middle October. I'm heading down there next week. So things are happening. We're very excited. We'll also be visiting two organizations in Guatemala that we're, we're looking to, to support both in funding and also in know-how. So, And that could expand to, to other countries, including Colombia and, and Ecuador in the near term. I think that your your, your attitude and in, in your drive is, is definitely something to to learn and, and 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 follow right i think a lot of people are struggling with what to do with their lives and and i, I was i was talking to someone today going through some hardships and and saying like look it, it's like i feel like a lot of people here in america you know my myself included sometimes when we're down we're like well how do we worry about our mental health and how do we have a little bit of distraction or we get busy or, or, or we have fun or we find a hobby or we bike or kite surf or whatever. But I said, the other option is you serve, you serve people and, and, and you give and, and really that that's something that you're showing me. Right. And that's something I, I want to learn from, right? Because it's like, instead of thinking selfishly, we think of, of others and what they need and that gives us purpose and meaning. Right. And, and so that's kind of why, I wanted to be you here on the show, right, to tell the story of what it's like um, to dedicate so much of your time, right, full time to this. And so tell me, like, for you personally, how how is this satisfying? How does this has shaped your life, right? Well, Elias, I'm a, I'm a very lucky guy. I, I, I recognize that. And I think, you know, you're spot on. I think service is an opportunity for us to stretch ourselves, but also to really you know, the real heroes, people are, oh, Kevin, you do great stuff. And, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I've contributed. But when, when we work with the students and those families in the, in the rural poverty or in the barrios, those are the real heroes. I mean, the sacrifice that they've had to make is so much greater than, you know, the granito de arena, the little bit that I've contributed. That helps me step back and realize all the, all the opportunities that I've been afforded, and again, to, to much who is given, much is expected. 
And that doesn't mean that it's all been served on a silver platter. I mean, you've had to work your butt off to get to where you are and, and, and really take advantage of those opportunities that mentors and, and others in your life. And I'm, and I'm so proud that in turn, you're doing that for other young entrepreneurs, especially in the Latino community, because there, there are less opportunities, there's less networking. You guys are building that uh, infrastructure and, and really building that ecosystem. So when people say or earlier in the show, you said, you know, well, how do you how do you get students to take advantage of those opportunities? You know, some gringo for Chicago can talk till he's blue in the face, but it's so much more relevant when they see somebody from their community whose family and they made those sacrifices and then maybe got a scholarship to go to university or maybe got an opportunity to join the SAT program and improve their livelihood. That speaks volumes. So what you're doing here in the U.S. as a mentor and your network of mentors, that can really turn on that next gen to say, you know, well, look, I mean, it can be done, at least. Not to say that everybody's going to build all these kids, but, but it's real. It's much more than, you know, me getting up on a soapbox and saying, you know, study hard, listen to your parents. So it's services. I, I'm the lucky guy. So, and frankly, the other positive thing is in a context that's so challenging, like Central America or many contexts here in the United States, where progress can be hard, we were very successful. We were able to build on an incredible legacy that Padres Robredo built, but that kept me going. So to, to, even though it wasn't, you know, straight line, you know, there's ups and downs, two steps forward, one step back. In the last 30 years, we've created great change and great opportunities. So that kept me going as well. That's the attitude that, that we need to have. And I think that that's kind of what I'm, you know, I'm at an inflection point and in, in trying to figure out I'm helping kids in high school right now. I'm getting involved in that. I'm getting involved in college. I'm, I'm heading to USF. A lot of focus on Latino, right? And and so we have stuff with children, housing, adults, college, and, and and graduates, and so like it's fun. I want to keep learning, right? I want to I want to find that that moment. I'm 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 extremely lucky, but I want to make sure that every day I get up and I'm like so happy and excited for what I'm doing, right? Not because of what I have, but because of the people I'm with, right? And 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 what I do. That's what I want more people to realize that it's not about just companies or money or fame or whatever. It doesn't matter. I love your philosophy. And obviously, you know, being able to meet your family, your wife, and know about kids. And likewise for me, you know, my, my better half, Nelly, is a huge part of the success and our son, Nicholas. And, you know, we're just very blessed to be, and she's an entrepreneur. She and her brother started a company and is, you know, really has that tenacity that you have to, to have to make things prosper. And so to have that work-life balance, it's hard because you're so one so focused on growing your enterprise and you know you have to i think i would have burned out a long time ago if i didn't have a wonderful home life as well and i you know i'm grateful to, to Manali and, and, and our son nicholas for creating that and i also work hard to contribute to that because i know it's important both for our family but also to continue to do the great work that we're aspiring to do both of us to wrap up your life, you're Americano, Italian immigrant, white guy, shows up in Nicaragua, and then what happened? What what happened on the personal side? Well, you know, it's funny. I was some friend who I met in Washington, a Nicaraguan guy who was working at the embassy at the time. I had knocked on the Nicaraguan embassy to, to, to seek support for our organization, and, and he and I uh, hit it off, and then he was posted back to Managua to work. And, and we stayed in touch, and, and he and my wife were friends and distant cousins. And so, you know, back before there was text and cell phones and all that, 
they were going to some party and, and Georgetown had a volunteer house and that's where I was living and they came by the house and, you know, I was sitting in a rocking chair and, and flip-flops and shorts and they said, hey, you want to go to this party? And I said, sure. So, you know, I put a collared shirt on and some khakis and Manila and I spent the whole night talking and, and really enjoyed each other's company and it was it was at a time when I, it was kind of funny because I, I felt that that one chapter in Nicaragua, at least Roberto was moving forward. I had my dad said, you should think about business school if you're going to really run an organization, whether it's a nonprofit or an enterprise, especially given that I my background was in liberal arts. So I, at that time, right right then, I was heading back to Chicago. I did my MBA at Kellogg at Northwestern University, which was a great experience for me because one of the faculties that realized that, you know, management is management is management, whether it's a, you know, a social enterprise foundation or a for-profit. So Manelli and I had begun to see each other and then you know we stayed in touch i would visit nicaragua during my my summers and she came up to see, see me once in chicago but upon return in 96 it really uh, took off and married in 98 so next year will be 25 years our son nicholas is 21 in november so it's incredible it's uh, been it's been quite a ride i'm a lucky guy i strongly believe in role modeling and and just Sometimes just one meeting, just one word, one conversation, just or even knowing about an individual can change the entire direction of your life. You know that happened to you with, with Father Fabreto. You you were privileged to meet him. Unbelievable. I like I said, definitely will will continue to support you. And and I think that that's really what I want people to know on the podcast. Right, that it's not just about. How do we succeed in life and careers or companies or entrepreneurship? But it's like, how do we become the individuals that we need to become, right? What is our purpose? And, and one of them is helping, right? And one of them is finding people like you. If we're not, it has to be a system, right? We either work and give or we go and do the work that the kids need or do both, right? There is no excuse. And, and people need to know that there's, you don't have to wait your entire life to say, now I can help. We can begin helping now, even if it's little. And like, even if it's coming, visiting you, getting involved, go to Guatemala, go help with one of those organizations because it could change your life uh, and it could be a much better life, like your life, a life of service, a life of family, and a life of gratitude and happiness for what you do. And thank you for being on the show. I appreciate it, Elias. It's been, a, it's been a privilege, especially working with friends like you and excited for this next chapter and, and certainly would love to invite everybody who's listening and watching Fabretto, F-A-B-R-E-T-T-O dot O-R-G. Fabretto.org is our website and there's information about how to get involved and I'm, I'm just Kevin at Fabretto.org so always happy to hear from folks who have experience and, and want to share what they've done and, and learn from them and, and also whatever we've been able to to do happy to share that and we, we do it together so whether you can volunteer whether you can support financially whether you have ideas or or connections networks that you think we should meet encantado and delighted and, and appreciative so thank you so much yeah people should take the invitation it is it is the easiest thing you can do go help and you don't need to know anything just call kevin <laughs> yeah and you'll get them going one way or another thank you this is awesome thank you brother Thanks for listening to the American Dream Podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss when a new episode drops. If you like this episode, please leave a six-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're interested in learning more about my American Dream mission, subscribe to my newsletter linked in the show notes.